it going today it's going man it's going yeah we're trying to have a summer here what do you mean trying we're recording this the first week of june 2021 <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well you know last year we didn't have much of a summer and it's not looking like we're gonna have much of a summer this year either it's continuing dampness up here in the rainforest but hey that's what you yeah get. but ketchikan is a rainforest and i love I it know, i love I know, it that's I why i love it so I much i know i know it's a good day to be in the studio. Yeah, okay. So that means it's... Oh, but wait, I'm here with you. <laughs> wait, does that mean it's raining right now or, or just gray and cold? It's a misty Right, right. Day. Misty fjordy. That's a right. misty fjordy. But we love it. We love it. How about you, man? How are you doing? I'm doing good. There's an interesting uh, article that just came out today. And mm-hmm. um, you have been to the Burgess Shale up there in British Columbia or you've been near it? I've been near yeah. it. I went to the uh, to the field station there right. and actually looked up at it and looked at the fossils. Okay, we all know the Burgess Shale is a beautiful Lagerstatten. Lagerstatten of yes. Cambria, the Cambrian explosion, and you know, yes, Wolcott found the fossils and everybody else um, interpreted it, and then of course uh, Gould wrote the book, which mm-hmm. is wonderful life, wonderful life. And that it is the great explosion of diversity on the planet. Yes. It's all recorded there. Well, a paper just came out today that said that there is an assumption that the mud flows that these creatures were buried in Mm -hmm. are not necessarily from the same community. That creatures could have been buried 10 kilometers away and actually moved and were deposited amongst other creatures that were buried. Therefore, the community you're looking at is not representational of a square meter or a square 10 meters. It actually could be different individuals in a matrix that is from kilometers away. So that is casting doubt. Casting doubt, but they're all from the same time Yeah, well, that's where I don't understand why it's such a big deal. I mean, obviously... If you have a saber-toothed cat skeleton and next to that is a uh, human, a, a human <laughs> and there's bite marks, you can probably infer they were in the same place, right? But if the cat is right. 20 feet below the human, you can infer that it's different time periods. All right, so you're talking 500 million years ago with the, with mm-hmm. the Cambrian explosion. And to me... If a hallucinogenia got transported 10 kilometers from up the reef and landed next to a Wawaxia 10 kilometers down the reef, you're still going to see it's a representation of the explosion of life if you're talking kilometers. Yeah, yeah. You're talking kilometers. Now, if you're talking continents or, or some continental drift, yeah, then yeah. They're not saying that this stuff was polluted with like Ordovician stuff that's suddenly down in the Cambrian. No, 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 no. They're saying... It's just from farther away. Yeah, from farther away. And there's another really cool deposit that's been found in um, nearby mountains pretty much the same age. Right. With even cooler stuff. You mean, oh, in the same same mountain? Well, same mountain range. A couple, uh, we'd have to look into it a little bit further, but actually it's I saw a very intriguing photo from this adjacent... Uh, mountain in the Cambrian, same era as the uh, Burgess Shale, same stuff, t- same time slice. But it's there's a guy holding up this large 
head of a creature. I mean, it's big. Do they have they identified what it and is? They, it's Cambrian. They have right? an it's Cambrian. It's the same age. Oh as, yeah, it's I from think the I remember Bixby. seeing something like that. And I've sent you pictures. This yeah. like, what is this? Is if this is a fish? So I and stay tuned for that yeah. one. But I, I've got that picture. This is I'm going to read from this article. It says, when we see multiple species accumulated together, it can give the illusion yes. we're seeing a single community. But we argue in this paper that an individual event bed could be the product of several communities of animals being picked up from multiple places by a mud flow and then deposited together to give what looks like a much more complicated single community of animals. And so to me... I see what they're yeah, saying. Me too. But to me, I don't think that really affects our understanding of the Cambrian explosion was this amazing diversity of life event. From, from what you're saying, it sounds like this is... We always thought that maybe this is a perfect little slice of a reef community as it was. Right. But these guys are saying... This is a place where a lot of stuff was dumped right, in right, right. from the Thames. Right. Oh, well, that's really kind of slicing it pretty thin, but that's yeah, good you're right. science. It is slicing it really thin. As somebody staking their career on it, whatever, earned their PhD with that, that's good. Yeah. I love it because yeah. we're fine-tuning it. I want to know what color all the animals were eventually, though. Yeah. Well, I'll bet that, uh, you know, they found colors in a 70-million-year-old bird-like reptiles, you know, they found... Yeah, yeah. Pigment. They found pigment, and they've also... Well, they found... Correct me if I'm wrong. You can't see that it's red, but you can see that it is the photosomes? What are they called? Uh, it's... What, are, what it's, are the things called that are color... Melana... Melana for... Melanosomes. Yeah. Yes, I was right, but of course, with Ray's help. A melanosome is an organelle found in animal cells, and it is the site for synthesis, storage, and transport of melanin. That's the thing that gives you a tan. It's the most common light-absorbing pigment found in the animal kingdom. Melanosomes are responsible for color and photoprotection in animal cells and tissues. So get out that 50 SPF sunscreen. But they aren't green or red or blue. They just say, well, this is a blue... Pigment. Right, it had been produced right. by this right. by this chemical. Right. So we we know this chemical composition or, gives, gives us this color. Are there colors from the Cretaceous? I I don't think so. All right. Well, if anybody knows, who, please write in and tell write us. Write in, write in. But I do know that, and sometimes the you can see the pigment pattern. Yeah. So I know that, for instance, from the Bear Gulch deposits in uh, in Montana, they are Mississippian age. There's actually stripes on the fish fossils. Really? There they are. Like you see the, oh, tiger stripe. Ooh, nice. Because, wow. yeah, wow. beautiful fossils. Sometimes with insects, you know, some of the very finely preserved, there's little patterns there, you know. So. That is so cool. But going way back half a billion years, and that's what we're talking about with yeah. Cambrian, I, yeah. good luck. Yeah, good luck. Good luck with those colors. And uh, yeah. let me switch uh, gears here. So... Yeah, let's. Had you watched that National Geographic documentary prior to me sending you the link last night? I had not. So I thank you for sending it to me. As our part of our research. Yeah, part of our research for today's uh, amazing guest. And then suddenly I go, that guy looks familiar. And it is our guest. Was on, it's our guest. Our guest was yep. on this. And so was Donald Brothrow as well. Yes, Donald Brothrow was in there in a nice green shirt with a nice orange tie. Yeah. Like, he looked pretty good. But, you know, yes, Scott Foss is who we're talking about. And I saw him kind of little cameos. And then finally, they put a little label up in front of him. 
Scott Foss. Okay, cool. So, so I dove last night into artiodactyls. Okay. Artiodactyls. And I dove into every single extant and extinct artiodactyl that ever existed. I saw this documentary. No, yeah. No. I saw the documentary, and it started with this little tiny um, four-legged creature, almost the Paleocene or the Eocene. Eocene. And, and that creature gave rise to everything from whales to hippopotamuses to giraffes to deer the to deer somewhere, yeah. to the ruminating ungulates. And they have two toes. The ruminating ungulates. I think it's ruminant. Oh, okay. A little difference. Ruminating. Like, well, no, no. Mm, Ungulates thinking. sit there and they think. Yeah, they do. And they, they think ponder. while they're ruminating. They're ru yeah, <laughs> ruminants. Whatever. All right. We're garbling all this. But there are two groups. There are the... Is the other one called a paras... Parasodactyl. Parasodactyl. And that is the mammal that had five fingers, but through evolution, they evolved into one hoof or one... Or, or the middle well, finger or, or, or whatever into one for thing. For horses, it's one finger, rhinos, three fingers. Right. So they are the odd toes, the odds. Got it. The arty ones, the artiodactyls are, even. are the even, even oh, okay, toes. Okay, great. So we're talking in telodonts. Today. Which are in the even toe. They're arty, the artiodactyls. Yeah. My question for our guest today, we're I love these well, I, I want to get him on the phone real quick because we're talking hell pig, dude. Hell pigs. Hell pigs. I know. Hell pigs. I know. And these are the gnarliest, most insane looking things that you would never want to meet. And they were huge. They were big, toothy. They are badass, man. I yeah. can say that on the show, right? I'm saying the badass. Yeah. They're badass creatures. Huge teeth. Wide cheeks. Ooh, they look like they're from Hades. I want to find out about that big, huge bone sticking out on the sides of their skulls. So we'll we'll ask our guest, Scott Fox. The cheeky, the jowls, yes. Well, let's just call him. We, we need to get into this. Yeah, yeah. Help pig, help it pig. Us. Help pig, help pig. Hey, David, meet Scott Foss, senior paleontologist with the U.S. Department of the Interior and the Bureau of Land Management. Hey, Scott, I think we, this is the first time we've met, but uh, meet my pal Dave here. Hey, Scott. <laughs> Hello, Dave. How are you? Good. Nice to meet you. Uh, I was watching a um, documentary, National Geographic, last night just to do some homework on uh, the hell pig and... Whoa, there you are. You and Donald Prothero are yeah. on this uh, fantastic. I what, what did you think about that documentary? Was that, did oh. they do a good job, you think? Oh, that documentary, I have to remember which documentary the National that, was. Geographic that was. That was the Hell Pig, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, uh, no, actually, Don and I have a book together. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, we wrote The Evolution of the Artiodactyls together. Oh. We're, we're actually very good friends, have worked together for 20, oh, oh gosh, almost 30 years. Fantastic. Good to know, because I thought you were saying, like, you know, you and Don won't be in the same room. But, uh... <laughs> no, no, not at all. We're very good friends, but I don't think we agreed on the, that, um, the interpretation in that specific right, uh, right. Uh, National Geographic Funny story about that, that National Geographic um, uh, special, uh, The Hell Pig. The producer kept asking me, you know, do you think a hell, uh, do you think the hell pig would win in a fight against these giant bear dogs? And I'm like, <laughs> they didn't live at the same time. So let's not talk about that. Yeah, but people want to know which one would win in a fight. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I don't want to well, go Well, this there. documentary showed and bear dogs and... Oh, no, that was... Deodon. Deodon, the latest in right. Deodon. Deodon. All yes. right, you say Deodon. I say Deodon. 
right. Well, what oh, is it? I, and I'm I'm fine with either. Is it Deodon uh, or Deodon? I say, I say Deodon, but um, I've been corrected. But it's a spelled D A E, right? Yes. All right, yes. but anyways, Scott's telling us a story about the bear dog showdown. Well, that's okay. I don't mind you schooling me on pronunciations because no, no, no. You know, I may be a good paleontologist. I'm not good in my life. Dude, I'm the last person to do a pronunciation <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm I'm the king of Latin, I guess. But... <laughs> so the the director of that series was fabulous. I worked with him for almost a year on it, and he was just just wonderful. But when it came to production, the producer kept calling me like. We don't have you on camera saying that this bear dog might, might beat an entelodont in a fight. And I'm like, no, you don't. Uh, but you have talked about that. Oh, yes, yes. And and I they didn't live at the same time. Entelodonts were an extinct by 17 million years ago, the latest one, Deodon. <laughs> and, and the bear dogs were around, but the very large, really big bear dogs, they, they weren't around yet. Right, yeah, right. But, one theory I've had, which which other people have picked up on, and, and Don actually agrees with this theory too, is that the giant bear dogs may have filled in the ecological niche right, left right. by entelodonts when entelodonts were gone. Right. And I and I do think that that's a, a very solid theory. So they didn't they didn't replace them, they just filled no. in the niche as they as they died out. So they wanted to tell a story that these bear dogs were coming in and, and beating up the entelodonts and right. sending them on their way and the entelodonts going extinct. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, entelodonts were gone. We had an open niche that was then filled by these giant bear dogs. Right. That's my story. But the producer's story was, no, these bear dogs came in and, and roughed them up and took them out. And I'm like, no. Well, and that's so, the way I got it, yeah. So here comes the, the uh, documentary airs. And they're interviewing with me and everything, and they get right up to the bear dogs and then switch to Don Prothero. Well, yeah, those bear dogs probably could have done that. <laughs> they're like, oh, wow. So it's on him. It's on it's him. On yeah, him. but Hollywood, so, okay. we found out Hollywood likes to tell a dramatic story rather than being paleontologically yeah. correct. Um, so. What was unfortunate in that case is I think they had told their story before they, wanted, they <laughs> didn't want to hear scientist. my version of right, the story. Right. right. So they wanted to have these bear dogs um, taking over from the entelodonts. They came in, they marched in, they, they beat them up. But I'm like, this was not an episode of Game of Thrones. <laughs> like, it was gone by yeah. that point. All right, it and looked now, cool. We're, we're going to get dogs. deep into uh, Archotherium. Archotherium. Yes. And, yes. and, uh, and bear Geodon. dogs and borof borofage. Borof borofaging Bor dogs. Borofaging. Yes. But the <laughs> real important question, Scott, mm -hmm. Are you a paleo nerd? Oh, am I a paleo nerd? Yeah, fess up, um, man. Fess up. Boy, oh boy. Um, I always fought that term, but my wife calls me that every single day. Why? Oh, Tell us how. Day, Tell us how like, it started. Oh, you don't want to own oh, that term, man? I, I'm proud of oh, my paleo I own nerd. It. Oh, I own it. No, okay. I am completely a paleo nerd. And and so, yes, so, so my story for you starts, and I've always told the story that I was two years old, but when you go back, and I have a son, and as I watched my son growing up, there's no way I was two years old when I said, Grandma, I'm going to be a paleontologist. <laughs> um, so it, it, in all honesty, I was about four years old, and I was really into dinosaurs like any four-year-old at that age, even back, back then. And, and this was uh, late 60s, early 1970s. So like the paleontology, quote-unquote, revolution hadn't hit. But everyone knew what dinosaurs were, and every kid at some point says, dinosaurs are pretty cool. Yep. I also thought dragons were kind of cool. Yeah. And so the discussion, and I actually wrote out this discussion when I was a child. So you know how your memory 
morphs throughout your lifetime. I actually have documentation from when I was a child and I wrote down this story. <laughs> I went to my grandma. And, and the reason was when I was in kindergarten, we had to do an autobiography. And my autobiography, a kindergartner, kindergarten autobiography, autobiography you know, my, in my I'm going to be a paleontologist. Yes. I've been a paleontologist my whole life. <laughs> so, okay, yes, I am a paleo nerd. <laughs> so I remember the discussion with my grandmother. It was, it was quite serious. And, uh, and I said, you know, Grandma, what is the difference between a crocodile and an alligator? That's a preschool-type question. Okay. Um, what is the difference between those two? Well, let's talk about a frog and a toad. What's the difference between the two? And she had really good descriptions of each one. Um, and then I said, okay, well, how about a dragon and a dinosaur? Uh. And she said, well, Scott, dragons can breathe fire. They can fly. And I'm like, whoa, dinosaurs can't do either of those things. She said, yeah, but dinosaurs are real. That was that's, the moment. That's the key thing. That was absolutely yeah, the key thing for me. You know, I wish I had a grandma like that. They're not pretend. They were real. There were dinosaurs. So then came the books for every birthday. Every every opportunity, I got dinosaur books. Dinosaur books. That was First me. From grandma, that was me. Then from my parents. And then it was just this and that and that. And then later in my career now, I'm meeting the people who wrote those books wow. I was reading as a child. And that was just blew my mind. And now I'm having kids saying, Scott, I've read your stuff. And I'm like, whoa, that really blows my mind. Um, and the moment that blew my mind the most was when, the, I don't know if the name rings a bell for you, but Morton Green was a uh, paleontologist at the South Dakota School of Mines. Yeah. Um, wrote many, many great papers, great paleontologist. And I was at a professional meeting and this um, older woman came up to me. I say older woman because I was pretty young at the time. <laughs> and, and she said, she looked at my name tag. And she says, you're Scott Foss. I've seen you on television. And I'm like, well, great. Yeah. yeah. And, and we had a nice chat, very polite. And she said, I want you to meet my husband. And she brought over the great Morton Green. And I was just wow, cool. like, wow, this is Morton Green. I've never met him before. I've read your papers. He's just great work. And he goes, my wife and I really loved your special on television, boy. Wow. And I think that was the Walking with Beasts around yeah. 2000, 2001. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was shortly after that. And and they were both complimenting me. And I'm like, but, 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 you're Morton Green. Right, right. This well, Scott, is so cool. Scott, tell me, where, where did... Where did you grow up? Are you a Midwest guy? You yes. ended up in South Dakota at the Badlands. What's the yes. arc of the story there? Where did where do you start out? Well, yeah, it's interesting. So I, I grew up in Minnesota. Okay. Actually, I, I, I did my formative years in New Jersey. Um, but then uh, Which exit? went to school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was in Cherry Hill, suburb no of No way, my dad lived there. <laughs> well, my dad lived in Voorhees, actually, which is right next to Cherry oh, okay. Hill. Yeah. 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 I know it was. I was it, it's funny because um, I, I've always told people New Jersey, you're either a suburb of Philadelphia or a suburb of New York. So it was which suburb did you Well, live you could in? be in you the know? Pine Barrens. Well, I was actually closer to the Pine Barrens. Oh, cool! I was, cool. I was, I was east of um, uh, uh, east of uh, Cherry Hill. But so, so, do you head to Minneapolis or Minnesota so, after that? So let's head to Minnesota, and uh, you're a little kid, and it's really cold there. Wow! And I and I grew up in that a good Viking ancestry, and just you know enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so Minnesota was, was really where I grew up. Uh, then I went to college out in Washington State, and that was I'm going to I want to ski. And I want to be a geologist because they couldn't go to college to be was a that paleontologist. Was that Washington State? I went to Pacific Lutheran University. Oh, Pacific Lutheran. It's in okay. Tacoma. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, Tacoma, Washington. Ah, it's the Viking um, thing. 
<laughs> yes, very Scandinavian school, yep. and yep. I kind of found my tribe out there, if that's yeah, a cool. correct reference. In Minnesota, I grew up with the Swedish Lutherans, um, and it, you have to be... I've never heard of a that. Good, you have to, you know, that, what? that... Well, you won't hear about it anymore because the Swedish Lutherans were the American Lutheran Church. No, wait, Church I won't hear about it anymore because Norwegian... Prairie Home Companion is no longer on oh, the there air. there you go. Yes, there we yes. go. Grew up with that, of course. That That, that describes it all. I went to a Swedish Lutheran school myself, oh, you so I do know about the Swedish so, Lutherans, yes. Right. But anyway, I had a great time at Pacific Lutheran University, did a uh, degree in geology, again, because you can't do an undergraduate degree in paleontology, did an emphasis in biology. After that, I went back to Minnesota, to the University of Minnesota, where I finished the equivalent of a degree in biological sciences and biology. And then after that, uh, I worked with Bob Sloan at the University of Minnesota. He was the first paleontologist I worked with. And, and that was after college. I was already, um, and I wasn't in graduate school yet. I, I had to get turned down to a few uh, graduate schools before, you know. Before turned we down moved by here. the best. <laughs> oh, I got turned down by by all the best. Yes, <laughs> I did. And um, I, I remember the, the last one, and I won't name who it was, but I... I uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. I was I was applying to graduate school. This was year two of applying to graduate school after not uh, uh, being successful. And uh, the the professor said, um, you know what, Scott, it came down to you and one other person. And to be honest, I really had to go with the person that I thought was going to to go on in paleontology, who's going to be successful in paleontology. And it was maybe... Yeah, it, it was rough, but it was, you know, it was a wake-up call for me, and I, and I, re I recovered. And um, <laughs> he and I are, are, are very positive colleagues today. But, but, but we, sometimes rejection makes you try harder. Absolutely, and I had a lot of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to hear that, man. I have too, but yeah. yeah. Um, the end of the story is fast-forward 10 years when he's uh, coming to me asking for a permit. Uh, to, to work on public lands. And I'm saying, oh, yeah, yeah. I okay. don't know. I remember you. Uh, I remember you. So. Uh, I don't <laughs> and know. And it was great. And and he's still in the profession, and he's a fabulous guy and, and a great scientist, and, and there's no hard feelings. Um, not even close to hard feelings, because he, he actually pushed me on my way to where I am now. Yeah, I had a number of those. I had another uh, uh, professor um, told me, um, no, you can't be a paleontologist. No, wow. You can't. And I'm like, oh, yeah? Well, let's find out. <laughs> is your forte the age of mammals, you know, in the Cenozoic? Yes, it is. And how did you transition from loving yeah. dinosaurs to, you know? Very, very good, good. Um, yeah, what did the mammals get you, man? Yes, that's a really good story there. So I worked with Bob Sloan, University of Minnesota. He took me under his wing. I was his last student before he retired. And... Um, he gave me his library when he retired. Wow. I mean, that was the the depth of our of our relationship. And, and in, in the sciences, wow. you understand how how important that is. Um, he really, he believed in me. He pushed me, and he was hard on me. But I, I said, "Bring it on, bring it on." And he was when I say he was hard on me, he demanded a lot. Um, it, he didn't suffer fools uh, to to quote the expression. He expected you to know what you were going to do. Tomorrow, Scott, you're going to be an expert on trilobites. I want you to come in here and tell me everything about trilobites. And I did. Wow. <laughs> and um, taught me a lot. So while I was at the University of Minnesota, I, I got this internship at the Badlands National Park in South Dakota. Ah. On my way to Badlands, they said, okay, Scott, I, I saw on the, the, 
the thing. There was going to be a four-hour afternoon training session. I was going as an interpreter to interpret to the public. And uh, there was going to be a four-hour training session on paleontology and geology of the Badlands. And I couldn't wait. This is going to be great. And, of course, Bob Sloan, had, when I had gotten that internship, said, all right, Scott, um, you're dropping this class right now. You're going to spend the next six weeks studying the geology of the Badlands, the White River Formation. You're going to learn every fossil there. And he, he made me do that. And he excused me from the rest of his class. And he said, you're working on this. And by the time I left the University of Minnesota six weeks later, I was an expert in the White <laughs> River Badlands. Wow, uh, that's cool. Paleontology. I got to the Badlands for this four-hour session. And the day before the session, they said, all right, Scott, are you ready? And I'm like, well, where's your paleontologist? <laughs> no, well, we don't have a paleontologist. I'm like, what are you saying? So during that internship, I realized the Badlands National Park did not have a paleontologist. They did no. not have a geologist on staff. They brought uh, Phil Bjork from the School of Mines, came and gave us a So wait, wait, what, what do they have? Like uh, people to clean they the porta potties and, and... Oh, they had they had wonderful professionals in in biology and everything else, but no paleontologists. But that's what are. I mean, is it? Yes. Well, so now you see the wheels turning yeah. in my head because ah. now I'm saying, "Huh, there's a niche here." You know what? I love working for the Park Service. I love doing this interpretation, education, outreach. I'm going to teach kids about interpretation, education, outreach. I'm going to be a paleontologist. There are fossils all over the place here. I've become a, in six weeks, become an expert on these fossils, but I'm six weeks ahead of anybody else. Awesome. Wow. And, and I said, there's a future in being a paleontologist for the federal government. That was my turning point. The Badlands were mammals. And then a year later, maybe you've heard of the pig dig, and I'm sure yeah. we'll talk about it here over the next hour. I moved the first shovel of dirt on the pig the dig. The big pig oh, wow. dig. The big pig well, dig. Well, let's wait, let's wait, wait, right, let me go back to White River. <laughs> sure. Okay. Just now, just just remind me: is White River the uh, Eocene? Let's have the lake deposits over in Wyoming. We have all the beautiful of uh, horses and snakes and turtles. formations right. and it it goes from Colorado through Wyoming through South Dakota and Nebraska. And it's the big so it's lake a, the deposits, the big huge massive lake deposits. It's, it's everything. It's right. more than lake deposits. It's it's mostly windblown lust blown in from from volcanics out in Colorado, probably western Colorado, um, and brought in a lot of these um, what we call lus or this this very right. fine, fine ash, ash yeah. redeposited, stuff, right, yeah. and then you have you have these prairie open grasslands there that are baffling all of this dust, and it's building up over time. And we're talking millions of years of, of, of accumulation of sediments. At the same time, you have you have these rivers moving through the area, bringing in other types of sediments. So you have river deposits. There are some lake deposits that are, that are quite well known in there. And then, of course, all of this windblown lust building it up. But it's very, very high in ash content, which gives... Great the, preservation. The, yes. And also the, the depositional environment that makes up the Badlands, it's clay. And, and this clay is that, that mood changing of the geology over time of this, this volcanic ash. You add water in time and it becomes clay. 
uh, very often. And then you have a lot of organics growing in there because it's it's collecting slowly, and then you have the grasses, lands in there, and then these organics with all the irons start to essentially rust. You know, you, you get the oxidation, and now you have these bands of red and purple. And is that basically the Eocene? The, well, what's the age? It's all so the it Eocene. starts in the late Eocene, and it continues all the way up into the Miocene. Oh, Oh, yeah. completely through the Oligocene into the Miocene, and then you move up into some of the overlying layers. Um, so that's that's what's going on out, out there in the Badlands. And of course, these White River formations are slightly different depending on where you are, because when you're in South Dakota, you're heavily influenced by outwash from the Black Hills, whereas in Nebraska, maybe not as much. Um, so there are some changes and differences of it over over area as well. But but generally speaking, we talk about the White River includes the Shadron Formation, the Brule, the, um, you know, uh, all the other formations there. And then down in, in um, Nebraska, you'll have analogous formations with different right, names. Right, right. And this is geology works. These great state lines where all of a sudden your formation has a new new name. Right. When it crosses the state lines, they, they <laughs> call it something else. But, well, let me ask you this. You're, you're in the Badlands. You're creating a job for yourself. Mm-hmm which is wonderful. So now they do have a paleontologist there. Have we actually met before? I know I've corresponded with you, and Ted Friend said you're the guy to talk to about hell pigs. We exchanged <laughs> emails. So, yeah. Did we meet so once? Our, the first, uh, so we've met in person at, at, at Geological Society of America. Okay, okay I was, I was drunk. I'm like sorry. It, well, so was I. So it, it, <laughs> okay. it's fine. And, and and also through Kirk Johnson, we, we, we've chatted. But but I remember, and I want to tell you or remind you the first time we corresponded. I'm embarrassed now. This is... And this is going to be about 15 years ago. And you correct Uh-oh. me a few years, but it was Uh-oh. just, it was around 2002, 2003, I think. You emailed me. And maybe it was a Facebook thing. Maybe it was an email. I don't even remember. I was looking for it earlier today. Like, I want to bring this up. I want to know when this okay, happened. You I'll... sent me a picture of your hell pig illustration. Yes. That wonderful. With the flames. flames. With the flames. Oh, the flames. Yes. That wonderful illustration. And you said, Scott, you're the expert on entelodonts. And don't you think this would look good on your skin? That's a <laughs> Did I say that? Uh, something along those lines. I'm, I'm right. probably paraphrasing heavily. So but, show us the tattoo, Scott. Oh, so <laughs> I, I I have thought about it for 15 years. Like, oh, Ray Troll wants me to put this on my I skin. Punch. How cool oh, would that oh be? Oh, my God. There must have been drinks involved. All right. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Those almost certainly were. Um, so I... I haven't done it, and and one of the reasons oh, was man. I just it just had this wonderful symmetry, which wouldn't work on an arm or something. It needs to be it needs real estate. That if anyone wants to do it, and I'll, I'll put this out there, if anyone wants to do the hell pig tattoo, which would be fabulous, well, we'll have a link to that gotta, image. It, it's going to well, need real estate. It's okay. got to be your entire back. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it so needs I, real estate. I, it's beautiful, and I just didn't have the courage to. You know, I will that share one. that. We'll have it on <laughs> yeah. the, on our webpage, yeah. and anybody yes. who wants to do it. But let me let me ask you this: Kirk and I, when we were working on the cruise in the fossil freeway mm-hmm. book, you know, we started getting this idea of these these predatory pigs. I started calling them killer pigs, and then I did the one with the flames, and so we started calling them hell pigs. And we kind of, in our minds, think we. Were the ones that kind of came up with that. But I kind of, in my mind, think you coined that term also. I I was confirming. You know, yeah, well, let's so get I just into want to this, take but, credit, but, but gentlemen. But, but wait, 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 Dave. I want to ask you. I want to ask you, Scott. Have you heard the song "Hell Pig"? Oh, dude, I'm gonna it. say no. 
Oh man, I'm going to email that to you. you to, we, yes, we, please. We'll have a link to that as well. But Scott, I am blown away by this creature. To, to tell the audience mm -hmm. what is a hell pig and why is it so gnarly? And then I've got so many questions about yeah. oh, its yeah. skull. But let's move on. So, so the hell pig. Oh, I, I want to talk all about the skull. Can we call this is, the that's pig. the part I'm into. Can we call well, the pig? Yeah, let's start at the beginning. So, wait, wait. Yeah. So can I just say one I thing? The hell pig has the eyes of a hunter, the nose of a scavenger, the front teeth of a meat eater, and molars of a herbivore. I will <laughs> mostly go with that. Sure. Yeah. And it's the cheekiest yeah. beast there ever was. But yeah. I would say so. So yeah, let me tell you about the, the, yeah. this creature. It is it is a phenomenal creature. It's not a true pig. Right. Um, we found that it is. You know, if you if you look at it on the evolutionary tree, it's somewhere near the pigs, meaning it's a basal artiodactyl, and it split off around the same time as the pigs from what we call the the Selenodonts or and the uh, um, the tall tooth herbivores okay. of that group. So it's it's closer to the pig than any other living animal today. But it's not a true pig. So at first I resisted the hell pig. I'm like, all right, sorry, pig. yeah. But it's kind of grown on me. It's it's yeah, grown it on looks me quite a bit. sort of like a pig, um, right? Yeah, definitely. And I've always called it the big pig. So how is that any different than calling it the hell pig? Hell pig has a has more of a ring to and it. And it's more warthog like, if anything. Um, it appears warthog like. Appears, it's actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't compare it so much to a warthog. What I, what I compare it to for people today who want to visualize what this is, let's start with the niche. Uh, its niche is something between a razorback hog, yep. just blow it up to the size of a bison, and like a grizzly bear. Mm. And I really like the comparison to a grizzly bear because, um, first of all, those, those rear teeth are the big, flat, bunidont teeth meaning they're big, flat teeth. Butadont, say um, that again? They're very generalist, kind of crushing, uh, chewing teeth. I think what other animals have those today, those big, flat teeth, you're going to see humans, you're going to see rats, uh, and you're going to see bears, you're going to see pigs. Omnivores. Omnivores. They're omnivores. And and so what I describe them is, is like, what are these animals all have in common? Where would they be happiest? And the happiest place they will be is in your living room, watching television, eating Doritos, just kind of hanging out. <laughs> or Luby's Cafeteria, the barbecue buffet. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And and so there's these big, thick, like crushing molars. They're, they're premolars. They're actually the real crushing ones, right. like the telodonts. But, but these um, very big generalist animals, but it was also the largest animal on in its area. I mean, there were some uh, herbivores that were slightly larger, but it's still extremely large animal. I really compare it to a grizzly bear, and I like the comparison of the grizzly bear, and, and also appropriate to the razorback hog, in that they will eat anything. anything. You find that grizzly bears will often, depending on the population, but many populations of grizzly bears will get most of their nutrition from, like, moths berries, right, uh, you know, right. things like that. Not We think of them just eating these big protein-rich um, fish, and if there's fish around, that will be their number one thing to eat. But these grizzlies can take down a large animal, a deer, and eat it, but they're also eating moths. They're eating grubs. They're eating whatever they can find that has the nutrition that they need to build up their fat stores to, to survive. And I think entelodonts were very much the same way. But Scott, these guys have canines the size of bananas, you know? Yes. And yes, uh, they incisors, do. and they're all forward pointing, and they've got those like teeth out front for nipping, and they're serrated. 
Are they? Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Yes. Which one, the canines yes. are serrated? The canines are serrated, right? And some of the premolars as and well. And the premolars. Yes. So that tells mm-hmm. me meat, man. It's it's a killer. Uh-huh. Don't you think it's well, a killer? Well, that's for processing meat. That's not necessarily killing it. It's for processing the meat. Processing. But, I also, but I think they would kill it if they could. Let's go I back to the grizzly okay, bear. They'll reach they out and kill They'll it. kill you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, question. Oh, yeah, without, question. without a second thought. Question. So what is the first fossil evidence of a, of, of a entelodont? Is it entelodont or entelodont? I've okay. Let's go talk about pronunciations again. I've always said entelodont. Okay, and I hear entelodont all okay the time. so what's the first one? Does it have serrations? And when do the serrations appear? Well, that's that's really interesting. So the earliest ones are known from Asia, and it's still not known where the earliest one is. But probably like Mongolia or China um, is where some of the earliest known ones are. One called Eoentelodon. An eoentelodon is is middle or early late uh, uh, Eocene, right? Eocene, and yeah. so they come around like uh, well, we see them in North America starting about forty million years ago, like in the Duchanian or earliest Shadronian. Um, actually, Duchanian. Yeah, you, you'll you'll start seeing them there. Um, Flagstaff Rim, Wyoming. There's some really early ones up in Canada. Here's a quick primer and reminder of eras, epochs, and ages of Paleo time. There are three major eras, the Paleozoic, or Old Life, the Mesozoic, Middle Life, or the Age of Dinosaurs, and the Cenozoic, New Life, or the Age of Mammals. Now each era is comprised of periods. You've heard of the Cambrian, the Carboniferous, and the Permian periods during the Paleozoic, and of course the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous periods during the Mesozoic, the Age of Dinosaurs. The era we are in, the Cenozoic, the Age of Mammals, starts when that space rock ended the Cretaceous 66 million years ago and three quarters of all plant and animals went extinct. Hmm, sounds like the work of Thanos. Anyway, the Cenozoic, which starts at that Cretaceous extinction event and extends to the present day and is made up of seven epochs, the Paleocene, the Eocene, the Oligocene, the Miocene, the Pliocene, the Pleistocene, and the Holocene. Now, each epoch is made up of ages which are too numerous to mention because there are 27 of them. These 27 ages in the Cenozoic are called the Nalma, or the North American Land Mammal Ages, and each age represents the first appearance of individual species as they were found in strata around North America. So, when Scott is talking about the Duchanian or the Shadronian, those are specific ages of time that fall within the Eocene. It's a great rabbit hole to dive into online. And by the way, the rabbit is from the Bugs Bunnyan age of the Warner Brothers epoch. Well, Dave, that's sort of right. I'm sorry to jump in on your explanation. So this is an aside to your side, but the Nalma ages are used by paleomammalogists to specify when certain mammal groups appear in the fossil record of North America only and they don't exactly line up with the Cenozoic epochs. A dude is Duchesnian, not Duchanian. And while we're at it, I say Cambrian, not Cambrian. And it's clearly the Mickey Mousonian Nelma age and the Wiley Coyote epoch, not the Bugs Bunyan. And who the heck is Thanos? Dave. There's some really early ones up in Canada. Sort of the later Eocene, a little bit, yeah. Yes. And do yeah. they and have the up. shape and the, and the mouth and the face and the teeth when they first show up? When you see them in North America, they do. The earliest ones from Asia, we don't know a lot about because we have teeth. And these teeth are, are like 
very like I've I've looked at these teeth and I agree they're in telodont. They're smaller, but we don't have skulls to go with. Right. You know, we don't know when that happened. The earliest one we know of in North America is one called Brachyhyops. And Brachyhyops has the big flanges that we see, these big facial flanges that come out of this jugal flange. Which is made of skull and bone. It's bone. And the earliest one just has kind of like a wing that sticks out. It's there. It's already present. And it very rapidly, rapidly starts getting larger. So then we get to some of the earliest true Archaeotherium uh, um, uh, or Cyprotherium, uh, one we call Cyprotherium from the Cypress Hills of Canada. That one actually has the flange. It's, it's only about half as long as some of the later ones, but it's there. It's definitely a flange. But what were they for? I mean, obviously, there's yeah, no muscle yeah. attachments. Oh, there are muscle attachments. On the flange? At the base. Well, at the base of the flange. And there's huge on the holes in the middle of those flanges for muscles, right? Really? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so so there's a number of things when you, you know, we go from paleoecology into functional morphology here, and the function of these things are amazing. So what I found during my dissertation was that by orienting the chewing muscles further away from the skull, the chewing muscles insert into the jaw, instead of coming vertically inserting into the jaw, they are coming in from the outside like a strut on an airplane wing kind of thing, like coming wow. in from the outside. Now, now, they're not a strut. They're not holding the flange up. It's quite the opposite. The flange is supporting the muscle on the jaw so that this animal, and now this animal had these, um, um, the if you look at the coronoid process or where the jaw connects to the skull, it's very low. And when we see animals that have the jaw connecting to the skull at a very low point, those are almost always animals that can open up their wide jaw. Gaping. Incredibly Super wide gaping. wide. gape. And you see this in, in reptiles, mammals. This is just a functional thing you see. And, and in this case, the jaw joint in entelodonts is either level with the molars or below. And in some of these, like saber-toothed cats, it's even below the level of the teeth. Dumb. So they can open their jaw up an incredible amount. What kind of a bite force would they have? Oh, though? man. So so we talk about bite force. So what is the analog to this? Do we have a mammal analog today that opens up its mouth an incredible amount, is incredibly strong like that? Hyena? Bigger gape than a hyena. I know, I know. Ooh, go for it. Hippopotamus. Hippopotamus, yes. Oh. So let's look at the hippopotamus. And this is what I did in my dissertation is I looked at the hippopotamus and I actually got a skull of a hippopotamus to look at. They tell you that that's not easy. No, a skull is easy. Uh -huh. The muscles. Like, you know. Right. A, a, a you needed a fresh a hippopotamus. <laughs> well, it wasn't fresh, I'll tell you. Well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's a different story. But they're but, solely herbivores, aren't they? Yes, they are. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. But they have massive they... gnarly teeth, too. Oh, yeah. But they have an incredibly strong bite force. They can open up their jaw incredibly wide. But there was a problem. They don't have flanges on their cheekbones. But have you ever looked at the dependent process of a hippopotamus? Because most of us have. Not Let's lately. Let's get back to paleo here. <laughs> How many people have looked at the, at the dependent process? So the dependent process on the hippopotamus. We just wait, wait. Just I'm a newbie. The dependent process is a muscle. It's, or a muscle no, group? the dependent process is actually part of the jaw itself. It's, it's, it's the, part of the It's bone. like the angle of the jaw. It's what we call the of angle the of the jaw. Yeah, of the maxilla. Right. So if you, it's the long portion of the maxilla okay. if you come down from the jaw joint. It act, in the hippopotamus, it drops down and then it curls forward like upside down ram's horns right. or something. These processes, now some animals, the processes stick, stick straight down, but these it turn goes down and turns forward and outward. So now you put a muscle at the end of these uh, dependent processes, bring them back up to the 
to the uh, maxilla or the, the chewing muscles up in the skull. And instead of coming straight up to the skull, these muscles are coming in laterally to the skull, effectively doing exactly what entelodonts are doing, but the opposite way. Because entelodonts, it's the flange on the skull sticking out, coming down to the jaw. In the hippopotamus, it's the jaw sticking out, coming up to the skull. But what they have in common is the wide gape. Now, when an animal has a wide gape, um, now, first of all, if you walked up to a hippopotamus, punched him in the jaw, would you break his jaw? Uh, no. <laughs> Probably not. But when is your jaw, when is your jaw really in trouble? It's when your mouth is open. That happens like saber-toothed cats, uh, uh, carnivores. It's very dangerous to open your mouth and try and kill an animal that's fighting back because they're going to break your jaw because your jaw is pretty weak. And, you know, you're getting a bar fight, keep your mouth shut. Right? Or it's usually better the other way around. Keep your mouth shut and you won't worry about the fight. Right, right. Don't make an insult. <laughs> The point is, when the mouth is open, the animal is at uh, is in danger. And so, in the case of entelodonts, we know they were fighting each other, doing intraspecific combat, and they were battling each other with their mouth open. And we know they were doing that. And that gets back to the paleoecology side of it. So, if this entelodont is trying to take down a very large animal, like a rhinoceros or a calicothere, which was a big, wonderful perissodactyl that lived like in Agate Springs, huge animal. Um, these things probably fought back if they were trying to take it down alive. I'm saying, why would you do that? Wait till it dies and then go get it. But, you know, if you're fighting it while it's alive, it's going to fight back. And if your mouth is open around it, you are, if you break your jaw, you're, you're probably not going to survive. Game over. Um, so these animals had these muscles that were stabilizing the jaw at large gape. And that's the... That's the bing bing moment. You have to read my whole dissertation to get to the conclusion. So this is your PhD thesis. Yes. All right. Wow. So this is on the on the gape of Archaeotherium and uh, other entelodonts. Diodon, yeah. But uh, diodon. Um, so what you're saying is they could open those mouths and tear at a creature, and because they're reinforced with all this extra muscle. They weren't as vulnerable then, right? So they could actually take on a big beast and use their mouths to kill an animal? Is correct. That... It, correct. But we also know, uh, but I don't know about the evidence that we know that they bit into these large animals because right. we have Their bones of marks. rhinos with bite marks. Yeah. So we don't know if the animal was alive while they were fighting it. So we're speculating at that point. But what we're not speculating about is that these things were biting each other while they were alive, and these bite marks, so right. we find entelodont bite marks you have healed in pathology? the of other, yes, healed pathology. And some of these bite marks are in the roof of the mouth. In Ouch. other words, they got <laughs> bitten across the snout, oh. and they'll have a hole in their forehead into one of their paranasal sinuses, and they'll have a hole up into their um, that, the heart And it palate. matches the dentition. Yes. Right. And there's also nothing else in the... But the skull and head of an entelodont is so long, right, compared to almost mm -hmm. any other animal. It almost looks like a Bacillosaurus, like one of the early whales, right? So you'd have to have that flange. Superficially. You'd yeah, superficially. You'd have to have that flange to support such a huge elongated skull and jaw, right? Um, I, yeah, and I say to stabilize it. Right. Because you can have really strong muscles that are vertical. 
You don't need the flange to have a stronger muscle. What you're doing is you're getting more of it and you're also stabilizing it from the side because if you're stabilizing the muscle from the side and, and, your, and your jaw gets punched you know, right. sideways, you, you're much more stable. Right. So it's stability during wide gape. Well, actually, my, my question kind of follows up. We, we're thinking alike, Dave. Their skulls are so long, but there's one that uh, Rob Gaston cast, Omega Kiros. Yes, I know. It's I know the specimen. You know the specimen because I've written to you about this. Omega Kiros means large hog. But is that still an Archaeotherium? Is there that been debated? But anyways, that that mm -hmm. one skull is like 33 inches long, but it's like 43 inches wide. Uh -huh. So its head is wider than it okay. is long, and those flanges have got to be used. Is that because of the flange? It's wider than it's long. Let's transition out of functional okay. morphology and talk about paleoecology. What they were doing. We have shown in these mass death assemblages, and we have eight separate mass death assemblages in North America of entelodonts, where we have young and we have old, oh, and wow. all in this group, really? they all die in a similar area. But wait, what we killed them before, you, before we get into, what, why, why do you have them there? What, what happened if they all die together? Well, that's, that's a fantastic story in most cases. <laughs> well, in the case of the pig dig, dried up watering hole, you know, the big pig dig. Big pig dig. Big pig and dig. And they all died together around the same time. And my my thesis is that they were water-dependent animals. Some animals, when the drought hits, they start walking like elephants. They're like, well, no water here. Let's keep walking. And other animals say, I'm going to stick around this dried up, this watering hole, because it's going to get me through, and I'll be fine. But the problem is that once in a generation, the watering hole dries up and everyone dies, except for the ones who went for a hike. But the ones who go for a hike lose a large part of their population every year. So when you have these water-dependent animals, the ones that hike like an elephant, they lose a few elephants each year as they hike, but eventually they'll find water. Whereas the animals that sit at the watering hole, they'll survive, except for in those catastrophic years where they all die. So what we're seeing in these entelodonts is I think they were an animal that tend to stay at the watering hole, and every now and then you have a catastrophic die-off of entelodonts. Um, and we have a number of places where we superficially see that in North America. The pig dig is, is probably the best studied one, but uh, I think there's others that we can um, talk about. In the case, now going back to the, the functional morphology of these things, um, these animals were, were actually biting each other in, I think it was intraspecific combat, and they were putting their heads over the other head, biting in from the top. These are healed wounds. You don't find bite marks into the eye socket. You don't find lethal. We don't find skulls of entelodonts with lethal, like a, a, a mortal, excuse me, mortal wounds. Ah. So they're surviving. These are dominant now, displays, that, dominant. Yes. Now, in these populations of entelodonts, lo and behold, you find a big morph and you find a little morph, or as I call, boys and girls. <laughs> and in this case, the boys tend to have bigger flanges than the girls. The boys tend to have these bite marks, not the girls. Huh. So it's the boys that are doing the fighting. And the boys have a rugosity on the forehead, this, this, this rugose rough forehead kind of looks like a, a Klingon forehead. Again, <laughs> another geek reference for y'all. But it really does have, uh, the, the boys tend to have a Klingon forehead. The scanning signal has penetrated our shields. Now, if that had a keratinous covering or something, I mean, uh, I haven't been able to demonstrate that, but the idea is something to protect their forehead during this combat. Can you tell sex between individuals? Is there sexual dimorphism or? 
the sexual dimorphism would be in the size of the, just the overall size, but also the size of these flanges. The boys tend to have much larger flanges. And the, so what would the good of the big flange be? Well, number one is if you face off with another one with your big flange and open your mouth, maybe you don't have to fight. Uh, right. which is a which is a very common uh, threat display in, in the animal kingdom. But number two, when you do start to fight, and we've speculated, this is, we're going to go into wild speculation here, that these long flanges were actually acting as the hilt of a sword that actually protected them from uh, the jaw of the other I, I, I totally I saw where that was going, and that's exactly oh. what I was thinking, especially if you've got a 44, a 33 inch long skull and it's 44 inches wide, how yeah. can you get to the brain or the eyes? So it's you can't actually reach over. Evolutionary to get defensive or armor. Keeps them alive, at least. And also, how could how could your opponent get to your face when your flanges are so big? Right. So so it's it's the hilt of a sword protecting your face. Now that's that's pretty extreme. That's pretty wild. And I'd love to be able to test that. They're pretty cheeky, pretty cheeky. <laughs> so I'd like to be able to test that hypothesis. Do these flanges grow over time from the basal? Yes. So that's something else I found. That is one of the most fascinating things is these, the oldest individuals have the longest flange. These flanges are continuing to grow. Wow. Oh, I'm an evolutionary, like it's the start of the Eocene into the Oligocene. I mean, do the flanges get bigger and bigger as they yes. evolve? The, the flanges get bigger and bigger until you get to the giant entelodonts, the diodon, the uh, uh, formerly known as Dinohyus, formerly known as Amadon. Right. Um, you know, these, they have shorter flanges. Oh, now, I have two that. theories Almost about nothing. that. One is, now, they have much shorter flanges, and, and so I have two theories behind that, and and. Hopefully you've seen the 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 Dino Hyas at uh, um, Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Terminator you know, Pig, of course. We yeah. have a picture with it. Yeah. Yes, you do. That's right. I've seen that picture of you with it. I think that is one of the best reconstructions of an entelodont, hands down. It is so well done, and it was done almost thirty years ago, and it stands up today. Save one thing. Uh -oh. Save one thing. I don't think we've ever found a boy diodon. I think it's a girl. Yum. And if you check it, they have this big, big sack under that thing. Ah, but I think it's a girl. That's a good theory. I really think it's a girl. Why? I haven't found the flanges. Because the it doesn't I have think, the big flanges. Oh. Well, partly because we don't have the big flanges. There's two reasons. One, there is a specimen at the uh, um, University of Nebraska at Lincoln that does have a fabulously long s flange for an for a diodon. Unfortunately, the specimen is, is really poor condition, and I don't think anyone's ever studied it more than, than just measure the flanges as I did. So we do have a long flange that does not fit any other diodon we found. And number two, there's this animal from the John Day Basin of Oregon, which mm -hmm. is also that's a this similar age. It's, it's I was just um, there a few weeks ago. Yeah. Early Miocene. And I worked for Ted Fremd at, yep. at John Day Fossil Beds for yep. many, many years. There is a specimen there uh, formerly known as Bokirus, meaning ox hog, and the bones of Bokir. We don't have a skull. We just have a leg of it, a full, complete leg of Bokirus. The it, I think it was collected by Cope's um, uh, crew, and it's at the American Museum of Natural History. That sucker is 20% bigger than the complete skeleton of Dinohyus at the Denver Museum. Diodon. So, Diodon. Wow. Or, or, so it's, it's how much bigger? 
20% bigger. Oh, and, man. And, sorry, we have two complete skeletons of Diodon. One's in Nebraska and one's at Carnegie. But then you have that reconstruction at Denver. So there's three places you can see how big this animal was. And we wow. have bones that are 20% larger. So you, we know there's an animal 20% larger than the Diodon. And oh, we man. know that there's an animal that had a flange of Diodon-sized animal that that's has approaching, massive flange. Well, that's approaching so, elephant size. Well, I'm, looking ask, at, I'm looking at dimensions of the three-meter height. Uh, and a weight of 2,000 pounds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This guy's big. But this is even bigger than that, what you're talking about. So it, it might be approaching the size of, I don't know, almost an elephant. But Well, small elephant. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. But let me ask you this. <laughs> don't let me ask you, I'm an artist. I exaggerate. But so with these wide cheeks, could they possibly be used? You know, I was watching that Nat Geo special, and they talked about uh, entelodonts just basically crashing into their victims and pushing them over. Do you think those cheeks could be used in some sort of way to it's just bring down ram. an animal as a battering ram, just like boom? I don't see that, no. no. Um, I don't see any evidence for that. Uh, you know, if when you're that massive, you could body check another animal, of course. There's no evidence that they did or would have done that. It's a just-so story, but if there's a way to test it, let's test it. Uh, we build little models and we fight. <laughs> and that's fun. And, and and we started doing that when we were four years old, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's still doing it, yeah. Wow. Um, but but these flanges are, and these super long flanges, they're they're longer than they need to be to hold the muscle. So, so to get back to what you originally said, the muscle that I'm saying is coming out from the side, it's not coming out of these super long flanges. It's going to be in the, in the first third or maybe even quarter of that flange. So the muscle is coming out, but when you have a flange that's coming out like 13 inches, um, you know, you're talking two or three inches of muscle orientation that you don't have in other animals, but it gets extreme when it gets larger. Um, and you do have other animals that have large flanges, by the way, you have a number of um, uh, marsupials really? that have big flanges. Look at a kangaroo skull, for instance. They, they have these flanges. Flanges don't stick out like wings like an entelodont, but they the flanges do come down and they do offer right, right. A, alternate muscle oh. support. So it's not unprecedented in entelodonts, although the way entelodonts do it, there no other animal comes close, except in my estimation, the hippopotamus flange on its jaw is analogous to that, in my in my opinion. In their day, would they have been the biggest, baddest creatures around in the on the block? Yeah, without a doubt, and and they they would, you know, I'll go ahead and say here they would they would have taken a, a bear dog down no problem, right? <laughs> if they were right. Yes, there was nothing close to them. I, I like the idea. I, I saw the phrase in one of these descriptions that, uh, especially with Diodon, that it's an, an intimidation scavenger. So you intimidate. So you let somebody else do the killing, and then you just basically walk over and you take the kill from them. Because you're so big yes. and bad, ain't nothing going to take you on. I, I like that a lot. I, I actually have put that forward a, a numerous times, that why not let somebody else, such right. as the bear dogs who would work, probably worked in a group. So if you have these small bear dogs that were around at the time as, as the later entelodonts, not the big massive ones, but these smaller ones, they take down, say, a rhinoceros, uh, um, early Dicerotherium or, or, right, or right. Menoceros, one, one, one of those early ones. Yeah. Yeah, you walk over to it and you say, this is my dinner now. Yeah. What are they well, going to do? Well, that theory's yeah. been put out there, you know, the T-Rex behaved like that. Or maybe the yes. juvenile T-Rexes did the killing, and then the big so, mamas have come over and said, it's mine. 
In 2014, um, I think it was 2004, maybe it was earlier than that, I, I was uh, pushing what I call T-Rex of the tertiary. Actually, it was 2008. Uh, T-Rex of the tertiary. And I said that entelodonts were the ecological equivalent of Tyrannosaurus rex in their ecosystem. And partly I did that because paleontologists love hyperbole. And artists, too. <laughs> and artists, yes. Yes, which is why I'm such good friends with artists. Um, I, I love what artists do because artists are allowed to do everything us paleontologists are do, except we're allowed to hypothesize one step beyond what we know. So we see holes in the skull, we can hypothesize they were battling each other. An artist is allowed to take it two steps further. I take it to outer space and beyond. And I like that, I appreciate that. <laughs> but, but I appreciate that, that artists are given the license to go two steps beyond what we know, whereas a scientists are required to just just talk about what we know and hypothesize yeah, yeah. the next step. But an artist will say, yeah, and they had feathers and they were red. And uh, they look better with flames and throw in a cheeseburger. So that's what well, I do. That's, that might be three steps, but I'm okay <laughs> with that too. <laughs> and, and I'm certain they would have liked cheeseburgers, by the way. I completely endorse the cheeseburger theory. Ooh, hell pig burger. So I like it. At the height of the entelodont, which would be what, the early Eocene? Um, no, no, late, latest Eocene, and then through the Oligocene, Oligocene. And the early Miocene. Okay, at, at the height Miocene. of the Entelodon. So pretty much from 40 million years ago until 17 million years ago. But their heyday, I think, would have been about 35 million years ago to maybe 24 million years ago, if I had to pick a time period. Okay, and what is the predator-to-prey ratio? It's similar to what you see today. And so look at an area, I mean, we like to think about like the African savanna. I think we talk about that because it seems exotic to us. I, I, I think in Africa, people talk about the North American area. So there would be dogs, bears, and entelodonts, and cats. Dogs, you don't have really true bears yet. You don't have true cats, but you have nimravids in the earlier area. Nimravids. Kind of, the nimravids false cats. Are, yes, false cats. They're, they're, but they're really filling a similar niche. Are those are the hyenodons? No, no. Hyenodons are different Earlier group, well, you right? you have so you have a number of different uh, carnivorous animals in the ecosystem at the time, and some of these nimravids, for instance, are much more uh, obligate carnivores. Nimravids. Now that's a new one on me. Nimravidae are an extinct family of carnivores, sometimes known as false saber-toothed cats, because they look similar, but they're not. Now they are considered closely related as a distinct family in the suborder Filiformia which includes hyenas, mongoose, and cats, both large and small, including Fluffy, who's probably sitting in your favorite chair right now. They're not, they don't have the, um, um, the flat teeth, the, the omnivorous abilities. Um, and telodonts, we also know we're chewing hard food. So these premolars and some of the molars are broken from chewing, and they really, really thick enamel. It takes a lot to break those teeth. Much, much much thicker enamel than a hyena. And hyenas, we know, are chewing on bones. They have some of the hardest teeth of any animal right. uh, today. And these entelodonts are far, far, far ahead of the um, hyenas, today's hyenas, when it comes to cracking bones and things you like that. You could call them bone-crushing pigs. <laughs> bone-crushing dogs, bone-crushing pigs. Pigamorphs. Yes. You know, I, wanna, I do want to talk to you about your current job, but one mm -hmm. last question. A uh, couple questions here. Well, let me just finish, but we didn't get the answer. The entelodonts. I need, well, I need to know <laughs> the, the, the predators that existed at the time of the entelodonts. But who was their competition? Who was their competition? Oh, well, it's, it's true in the later years that the bear dogs were probably a competition. Um, I think mostly, hmm, 
In the early years, it would have been the hyena dance, right? And the Korea dance? Yes, yes, the Korea dance. My question uh, is, you think that they actually, they're, they're, they're closer to pigs than they are to whales? Aren't there some people actually still arguing yeah. that entelodonts that are members of the whippomorphs? The whippomorpha, yeah. Whippomorpha uh, and whales. Yeah. What? Whippomorphs? Okay, I'm just Googling this. Whippomorpha is a group of animals that contains all living cetaceans, whales, dolphins, and hippopotamuses, as well as their extinct relatives. All whippomorphs are descendants of the last common ancestor of Hippopotamus amphibius. So, Whippomorpha is a suborder within the order Artiodactyl, but there's a bit of contention as to really where this falls on the evolutionary tree. But modern Whippomorphs all share a number of behavioral and physiological traits, such as a dense layer of subcutaneous fat, blubber, and large hairless bodies. They exhibit amphibious and aquatic behaviors and possess similar auditory structures. So there you go. Orcas, flipper, <laughs> blue whales, whippomorphs. Now let's bring up Don Prothero again. And the reason I want to bring that up is, is he wrote what I thought is a really great paper a few years ago. And, and, and I asked to be on as a co-author. And we have a whole list of us as co-authors. And the paper kind of died somewhere. So, uh, you know, we need to revive this. But we're basically saying that, that the, uh, um, the whippomorphs, as it were, it, it's a nice group grouping to talk about, but I don't think it's taxonomically correct uh, to say that because, uh, or we call C. artiodactyla, meaning cetacean, the whales, and the artiodactyla, meaning the artiodactyls, the two-toed ungulates, um, and we call it C. artiodactyla. But if you have whales, not as a sister group to artiodactyls, but rather an in-group, like that branch grew out of the branch that's already artiodactyls, whales are artiodactyls. Right. There, there's no such thing as a seat artiodactyl. That's not correct. They're all artiodactyls. So what we should do is see a blue whale and go, hey, look, an artiodactyl. <laughs> um, it, it would be analogous closer to, to saying hippos. I keep saying they're closest to hippos. Yes. Now, and that's been borne out. But yes. did the four-legged so. land whales have two toes? They had what's called a paraxonic foot, which meant that the weight was centered between digits number three and four. So it didn't matter how many toes there were; it was where, where how their how their foot is. So they're even. They were even toed through. anyway. Yeah, but some even-toed ungulates can have a fifth toe. It's what right. we're looking at. What's really we say even-toed ungulates, and we're correct most of the time. But it's the weight is over that third right. and fourth digit, right. whereas. In a perissodactyl, or the single-toed ungulates, quote-unquote, the weight is over digit number three. And then, again, it doesn't matter how many toes are sticking off got the sides. It, got it. What we're really concerned about, because you have you have early horses that have four toes. You're like, what? Well, the weight is, is clearly over that third toe. So the whole idea of the whippomorphs is still being kind of um, debated. Oh, no, I'm debating uh, the semantics of what to call them. The actual connection is, is pretty well shown. Okay. And um, there's kind of a fun story about that because um, in the early days of this, it was going to be the next birds or dinosaurs. No, they're not. Remember all that? Right, the holdouts right. to the whole idea? A colleague of mine and myself were prepared to have the same battle. There is no way that whales are, are related to hippos. Just look at the skeleton. I've looked at many skeletons of hippos, and I know that skeleton does not look like a whale. Um, and so 
that was my my thesis and and I went into a professional meeting in early two, 2002 2001 I can't remember when prepared to to give a talk on that and so did a colleague of mine and just before that uh we had these two papers come out one by Tavis and one by Gingrich that showed the unique artiodactyl ankle was present in the earliest whales the 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 proto whales that actually had um that hatched had legs they had an uh, uniquely artiodactyl ankle that was it they're an artiodactyl and that was that was mind blowing but it's like okay it's only one thing and i'm not ready to take this yet so then i was in a uh, um in a museum collection and i pulled out this little tiny jaw of an animal called cebocurus which is an an early artiodactyl and its deciduous teeth or baby teeth had these tiny tiny little crenulations going up and down that uh, were a miniature miniature archaeocete whale and i yeah. said oh my gosh i found a uniquely whale trait in an artiodactyl so what do i do because i'm leading the charge to say this is bs and here it turns <laughs> out i'm i i proved that they are you know they well, are whales. was this little uh, guy a transitional marine mammal no, not at all. It, it was a, why it would was the dentition, a terrestrial. Why would the dentition be similar to a proto whale? You know, it's it's interesting, and I haven't gone into that. It shows the right, kinship, right. though. It, but it did. It showed the morphological. It showed the taxonomic connection, uh, the paleoecological connection. I don't. I don't know the answer. But everything is a function of their environment and what they eat over evolutionary well, time and, and of their ancestry yeah. also of the holdovers from their ancestry but the earliest whales had these crenulations going up and down their their teeth uh and you'll see that even in the museum you just look up at basilosaurus or any of these you see these these uh these teeth that that are no other animal has teeth Very distinct, like yes. these archaeocete whales wow. except for the baby teeth in a number of these early early artiodactyls cool. and i'm like oh they shared their teeth too huh. it's their deciduous teeth so the teeth would fall out when the adult teeth came in. You, they didn't look anything like that. Um, but it was this little animal called Cebocurus. And we were like, oh, my goodness, they're, they're right. And, and we weren't happy that, the, well, you know, we had to say, Did okay. you stand down, Scott? We did. Well, we did more than stand down. We published our, our paper and, and critical evidence number two that whales and artiodactyls are similar. Cool. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, I think it was a good positive moment and it showed that science worked. Yeah. Right. Science works. There was yeah. pushback. Hey, Scott, we'd be uh, remiss if we did not talk about your current job. You actually just got promoted recently and, uh, you're in a different, you're in a unique place in paleontology in the, in the world. You work for the federal government. Well, yes. So I, ever since 1992, when I started with the National Park Service and then the big pig dig of 1993, I've been with the federal government ever since then. I said, you know, as I said earlier, there's a niche here in federal government. I'm going to be a federal government paleontologist. I didn't know what that looked like at the time. I went from the National Park Service. I eventually went from Badlands National Park and the White River Formation out to the John Day Basin and the John Day Formations, the Clarno Formation, beautiful stuff out there. And after a number of years there, I, I became the regional paleontologist for the Bureau of Land Management, uh, left the Park Service behind, started with the Bureau of Land Management, was a regional paleontologist out of Salt Lake City, Utah, for about seven years, and then went to Washington as the senior paleontologist for the Bureau of Land Management. And wow. was that for, well, for a little over seven years. BLM nationally or BLM just for Washington? BLM nationally. Whoa. Nationally. Land of many uses. The national BLM paleontologist 
in in the last administration, they decided that the the program leads for uh, the Bureau of Land Management should be in the West, closer to the people they work with. And so I was given an incentive to move West. And uh, if you if you've read the the whole articles about it and everything, most of my colleagues did not take the the move. Um, they have kids in school. They have dual careers. Their whole families in Washington D.C. They spent their career there. But it does make sense to be at the place you're governing. Uh, only a few of us uh, took the move. So where are you now? You are. What's so, your, and what is your job now? So now I am sitting in um, a Santa Fe, New Mexico. It is beautiful. I have this wonderful office and the, these beautiful windows around me. You know, with COVID, I've been working at home for the past year, and, and now we're looking at transitioning back to the office. Uh, but I am now the division chief for the Division of Education, Cultural, and Paleontological Resources. So I am wow. I, I supervise the paleontology program, but also a couple of other programs, including the education program and uh, the Paleontological Resources Preservation Act, um, which is a law passed in 2009, requires us, or the federal land man management agencies, to do outreach and education in paleontology. Uh -huh. So now I also have that program. And um, we're really in a, in a neat place now. And and we're we're still, uh, you know, I call it the founder effect. I mean, I mean, I didn't come up with the founder effect, but we talk about the ecological founder effect where, where you get into this new ecosystem because 90% of my colleagues are no longer with me. So wow. we're rebuilding our our headquarters function. We used to be the Washington office. Now they call us headquarters. Kind of rebranded it uh, appropriately, I think. Um, but we're still rebuilding. It, we're going to be rebuilding for some time right now. So we'll be hiring a new uh, senior paleontologist for the Bureau of Land Management. We're going to be rethinking how we do these programs. It's been a very, very interesting uh, road over these past couple of years. Is your jurisdiction just there in the New Mexico area, or are you still working in the national level? No, we're headquarters. So, it's so our national office was moved out here. Oh, yeah, I so, see. Okay, I didn't follow that. All right. So the national okay. office was broken up and sent out to different offices oh, around I the country. So right. BLM has a number of divisions, and each division was sent to a different place. Uh, and then they moved the headquarters out to Grand Junction, Colorado. We are looking forward, and we're rebuilding, and what a great times we have ahead of us. It's a unique opportunity for us to ask a government official yeah. about collecting fossils on mm -hmm. public lands. And um, are you the fossil cop? I mean, if I go out, <laughs> you're not actually the enforcement, but you know the rules with the paleo. I basically, when I tell people, people want to go dig fossils all the time. Mm -hmm. And I say the number one rule is know who owns the land, who's in control of the land. Is Absolutely correct. Is it private land? Is it corporate land? Is it your friend's land? Do you have permission? But basically permission. And I always say, and I say, I always say, you can collect some invertebrate fossils and or plants. No vertebrates without a permit. If you find a bone, leave it there. But Scott, what's what's the uh, simple uh, process? Well, I think, I think you were right on. You're absolutely correct on everything you said. And so one thing I've pushed really hard for the for the paleontology program in the federal government, and this is across all the bureaus, I, I call what's I call it the paleo map or MAP, okay. which is your mission. What is our mission? And our mission is to manage using scientific principles and expertise. We are required to inventory, 
paleontological resources, and we are required to do outreach and education. So those are the three things we're required to do. So everything we do needs to fall into that mission. Well, what's our authority? The Paleontological Resources Preservation Act. And without going into detail about that, we take that and we go into a program. Now, our program inventory. Now, there's only like five of us in the BLM. So who's doing the inventory? You are. So we need citizen science. We need our permittees to do our job for us. So now this puts, and, and the reason I say this is I want to put some power out to all of you, is the people doing research on public lands are doing our job for us. So it is to our benefit to find the best way to get you permitted, to get you the information you need to be able to collect, and to let um, amateur and paleontologists to know what they can collect when they can collect, where they can collect, to give them that information. And we have a lot of work ahead of us to do to do that. But um, so you talk about, are we the fossil cop? There, there's eight things that we need to do. And one's inventory and monitoring. That's two. And who's doing our inventory for us? You are. Our permittees are doing it. Citizen science, our, our amateurs who are collecting, they are doing our inventory for us because I'm not out there doing the inventory. Uh, planning and mitigation. We have to plan for what we're doing on public lands, because we're not just doing paleontology. We're doing oil and gas, right-of-ways, mm, I mean, yeah. grazing. There, there's just all these things that are going on. So we have to plan for that because we're a multiple-use mandate. There's many things going on. We can't just say, oh, go collect fossils wherever you want because we can't do that. There's other things that are going on. So that's where planning comes in, mitigation. You want to put in an oil well. You want to put in a right-of-way, a pipeline. Well, there's a dinosaur there. What are we going to do that? That's where mitigation comes in. Big future in mitigation, I think. <laughs> um, then we talk about collecting and curation, and they go hand in hand because if you're going to collect, we'll let you collect, but those vertebrate fossils, at least, belong to the federal government, belong to the American people, which means they have to be preserved in a federal, or, or at least a federally approved collection. Yeah, I saw you have to actually write a paper and then send that back in as uh, as one of the... Well, there's a report that's due, but the right. report, again, we're trying to make the report as simple as possible. What we want to know is who, when, where, why, how. Gotcha. So the report could be one sentence. A journalist can do it in one sentence. Where did you collect? What did you collect? Where is that specimen now? Is it available to for future research? It has to be it belongs to the American public, so it has to go to quote unquote an approved repository. An approved repository is any repository that we say, yeah, you can put it there. Most of our major museums are approved repositories. And then the final part of it is I I couple these things is education and protection. Because if we're doing good outreach and education, we're not having to do fossil top stuff. We're not having to do protection because the public is going to be our stewards for us. I mean, we're, we, quote, protect these fossils for the public, which puts us at odds with arresting the public for enjoying the fossils. You know, we want to do good outreach, good education, let people know what they can and can't do out there. And everything you said here at the beginning was correct, by the way. You can collect... Um, a reasonable amount, you know, of non-vertebrate fossils. And I say non-vertebrate because we have plant fossils, we have invertebrate fossils, um, and a, a small amount of them. And for, for personal purposes, and you can collect them and you can keep them. Vertebrate fossils require a permit. And um, unusual uh, non-vertebrate fossils require a permit. So one thing I'm pushing now is, is I think there's a burden on us, the federal government, to explain to you what a 
what fossils are not common because right. um, you know you talk about trilobites all the time. Some of these trilobites are really really rare. So what if an amateur finds a rare trilobite? Oh my God, I broke the law because it's not common. You know, right. um, but trilobites are common. So how do how do we deal with that? And what we really want to do is partner with amateurs because we're not looking at getting all the fossils. We want to know what you found, where you found it, so we can manage for the future. Well, education is key. Education and outreach is really key. And that Education and outreach. And they're actually different things, too, I'm learning. Yeah, right, <laughs> um, yeah. But they really are. And there's not a wall between amateur and, and professional. Um, amateur comes from the Latin base for the love of it. Oh, that's uh, cool. Amor, love. Amateurs love what they're doing. Amore. Yes. And then professionals... You know, a professional does it as a professional because it's how they make a living. I don't think I've ever met a paleontologist who didn't love their job, though. Well, well. okay, good. <laughs> I, I have my days. <laughs> but, yeah. but what's important about that is, is my son, and my son really forced me to think about this because he was maybe five or six years old, and he said he wanted to be a paleontologist someday. And I said, well, why someday? Well, because I have to go to school to be a paleontologist. I said, well, a paleontologist is somebody who studies fossils. Do you study fossils? Oh, yes, I do. Well, then you're a paleontologist. All right. I don't know a single professional paleontologist that knows as much as some of these amateurs right. about, or people identify themselves as amateur paleontologists. That's a great point of view. Yes. So let me ask you the uh, next two, the penultimate question. If you could travel back in time, Scott, if you could go mm -hmm. to an epic epoch, your favorite paleo period, your awesome age, when would you want to go back to and what would you want to see? Oh, when? Can I go right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I know. You're asking about when I <laughs> let, me, let me turn on the time machine. <laughs> if you're going to turn on the time machine, take us back in time to what you want to see. Tell so, us what you're seeing. So I know where I want to go. I want to go to the top of Carnegie Hill at Agate Springs Fossil Beds National Monument oh. in uh, Nebraska. I want to go stand on that hill. I want to see Dinohyus yeah. diodon. I know. Um, Dinohyus diodon is kind of like Brontosaurus apatosaurus. So, so those that's are a term, yeah, that's a Terminator it, pig. So yeah, there you go, Terminator pig. Um, those of us who've been in it long enough want to say. Brontosaurus, and we want to say Dinohyus, and I will never I, correct someone for doing that. <laughs> I want to say Dinohyus too. I'm with you. So, what's your Dinohyus doing, or what do you want well, to see it doing? Can I ask? Am I am I safe here? I mean, yeah, you're, yeah, you're it's a safe room. Yeah, it's yeah. a safe room. Okay, good, yeah. good. Because <laughs> I'm going to change my answer if I if you just drop me out in the prairie because I'm not I'm going to be there for five minutes maybe. <laughs> right. So as long as I'm safe there, I want to see what they're doing. I want to see what they look like. I want to find that boy. Because I think, I think the animals we have are girls, and I think there's a boy out there, and I want to see it. I want to know what the ratio is, how many boys to how many girls. I want to see, um, you know, how small the young are. Um, I mean, we have we have the fossils of some really really early ones, but uh, earlier in their life is what, what I meant. But I want to see, I want to see the whole progression. I want to see how they live. I want to, I want to film a nature documentary on entelodonts with the real deal and see how well we've speculated. I want to compare my speculation with what was really going on. So yeah, I'm picking Agate Springs. That's awesome. And if I'm there long enough, and do I get a truck or are trucks? Dude, you could have one of those cars from Jurassic Park, you know, with, with, a, with a lasso. Because then I want to head on up to the Badlands and see what that looked like. I mean, I kind of want to look around. I want to get out to the John Day. I have some property <laughs> out in the John Day. I would like to see what that property looked like. See what it looked like, like you know? Then. 
Yeah, yeah. Forty so million I'm years. I'm curious, ago. and I'm and I'm um I'm kind of greedy that way. You know, if you're sending <laughs> me back, send me with a lot of stuff. But that's what I want to cool. do. And <laughs> all right, I'm going to ask my question, then we'll wrap it up. Scott, uh, I've traveled around the Southwest, and uh, a very special place I go in the Coso Mountains uh, has uh, all these obsidian chips and evidence of um, the Native Americans that were there for something. They're even saying twelve thousand years. One of the is one of the stopovers from Beringia through California down into Central America and so on. But I used to go there, and there was a huge batate and grinding stone. Well, the last time I went, not only was this rock kind of overhang dug out and a huge uh, sifting screen was there, the matate was gone, the obsidian chips are still there because they're just chips, they're not made into points. But I'm, I'm like, I couldn't show my friends that, look, there was this matate and it's probably been there for... 500 years or 1,000 years or whatever. You know, there is no hole from where some jerks came to try to find something to make money or for whatever reason or to stick on their mantle. How do we tell people that that these things need to be enjoyed for future generations and left in place? Things that you're not going to... I mean, how many matates? You go to every any museum in the Southwest, there's one by the front door. Right? There's literally out there in the cactus garden. There's a matata. There's another one. There's thousands of them. But the point is, how do we tell people that? How do, how do you leave certain things for others to enjoy? That gets into to something, and in, in, in you're, you're actually touching on something that I've done quite a bit about, which is geoethics in the field. Ah. And, and uh, I wrote a paper on this, um, and I called it uh, uh, Leading by Example. And there are three components that, that everyone should think about, and that is values. What is your value on the land? And, and I, say, I tell this in, in relation to us being scientists, like, back off, I'm a scientist. <laughs> Was that a line from um, uh, Ghostbusters? And we, we tend to have that attitude that what we are doing is the most important and the most virtuous use of the land. And when I say we, I mean everybody. Because the wildcatters are thinking oil exploration, that's what it's about. That's why the land is here, isn't it? You know, miners, it's, it's here so I can get the gold. We all tend to have that, that tunnel vision when it comes to what we're doing. We need to think about the values on the land, what values people have. And in, in what you brought up there really brings in some Native American considerations. Because um, although there's more than 560 recognized uh, uh, tribes in North America, most of them will agree that you should probably just leave it alone. And so we are required to consider what the tribes think about this. But the tribal view is just one of these values that we need to consider, or actually 566 of them. But our view is also valid. We want to, we want to as scientists, I'm saying, is also valid. We well, want to study I, I think I've answered my question. If you don't respect the land and you see it as something right. take, 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 like the American dream, you're, you're going to take it anyway. It's just geoethics will never play into a part, will it? I think geoethics is extremely important, and I think it's coming to the fore right now. Well, I know it's important, but how do you get it across to the guy drinking beers with his buddy on, an, on a four-wheel ATV? <laughs> oh, look, a matate. Yeah, let's take it. All right. Let's well, shoot some holes in the rock while we're at it. In some ways, we're not going to be able to change that view, but we can bring that view to the fore. And I think we are seeing a change in that. And I think our discussions about climate change 
and respecting what that means is a is a discussion in geoethics. We talk about bioethics all the time, and everyone's like, "Oh, well, you should do it this way or that way." And and before you and with with COVID, we're talking about bioethics. What's an ethical way to to do these things? We need to talk about that and how we use the land. And with more and more people using the land and more and more uses for the land, and now we're talking about renewable energy. But renewable energy is has a really big footprint on the land also. These are things that we really need to talk about. And so when I talk about geoethics in the field for our colleagues, you know, we're talking values right now and values I think is, is key, number one. But then we talk about integrity. We need to be honest with ourselves and with other people about what we're really doing. Oh, I'm collecting for the university because I am really important and the university is doing important stuff. And then you find out later that that person got their permit under false pretenses or they weren't really working for the university. They were just curious. Um, I, have, I have hundreds of times had to go to a rancher and say, can we cross your land to get that paleontological site? And you'd better tell that rancher the truth. I want to cross there to find out what those rocks are and so on. And don't say what you think they want to hear. You tell them straightforward why you're there and what you're doing. And I've heard of people say, flashing their National Geographic uh, membership card. Like, <laughs> I'm here. I'm with the National Geographic Society. I'm a member. Well, yeah, if you get the magazine, you're a member of the National Geographic Society. But I think that really cuts into integrity when, when you do that kind of thing, and that kind of thing does happen. Integrity, really be honest about what you're doing. And it also means two years later, you send a copy of your research to that rancher who may or may not care, but you owe it to them to tell them what you did on their land that day. There's some integrity, and now they've developed a certain value, a certain respect, and they're probably not going to shoot their gun into that outcrop that they know you like. They <laughs> you know, yeah. might shoot a different outcrop. Yeah. But yeah. the point yeah. is they're going to start uh, adopting some of your values, or at least respecting those values. And then finally is perception. It's the perception of what you're doing right or wrong. Perception is so important. And we're having those discussions now about even things like microaggressions, where we talk about, you know, you know, we don't talk about a manhole. We talk about a... Sewer you know, we, we kind of cleansed our <laughs> language for that. Right. And for good reason, because I don't mean any harm when I say that. Of course not. But if someone hears that over and over and over, they're going to say, gosh, I'm feeling kind of less here. Um, you know, we have all these firemen and, and a quarter of them are women. And it's like, well, wait a minute. They're not firemen, are they? They're firefighters. And we've adopted that over the past 40 years. We, we've brought that in. But we need to keep going. And that's where perception comes in. That's brilliant. Hey, Scott, it has been absolutely a blast talking to you and uh, so good to uh, meet you again. I'm a little embarrassed that the first you few times were drunk. I was, you were drunk. You know, hey, I was yeah. drunk. I, yes, but no. My youth, my misspent youth. But anyways, thank you so much. And uh, I I have a greater appreciation for hell pigs now, man. Oh, me too. Thanks to you. Me too. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much, Ray. And and uh, this has just been so much fun talking to both of you. And, and, and David, great meeting you for the first time as well. My pleasure. It's just My been pleasure. a great time. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you, guys. Hell pigs. Wow. That was it. The hell pig, man. That was the hell pig official. It was the hell pig, pig episode, man. <laughs> <laughs> we finally got there. We finally got to talk about entelodonts. I know, I know. And uh, it's still kind of okay to call them hell pigs because they're kind of related. So I wanted to clear up, you know, some people saying more whale. Right. But uh, anyways, they were the biggest. They were the baddest. They were the coolest. And, uh, you know, you and I love them. 
you know, yeah. dinosaurs are easy to love, but hell pigs are Well, you easier. know, I, I highly recommend this National Geographic documentary, even though some of it is, you know, going to be a little over-dramatized, but it still gives you an idea of how gnarly, how bone-crushing, how mean, how ugly these things were, uh, you know, in, in, in 3D and in the landscape and the, the animals that they ate and killed. It's it's worth watching. It was interesting to find out that the uh, bear dog sequence uh, where they're fighting the big Diodon, which I learned today is Diodon, uh, that that was a little, uh, little it fudged it a little bit there. Well, the producers needed to have some drama, and people love animals fighting I each know. other. I so. know. Yeah, yeah, right. Every time the Antelodon would run up alongside its prey and then headbutt it to the side, and that would, like, knock it out. You know, I, I tried asking Scott about that old headbutting kind of knock-it-over thing, but he didn't really bite, so to speak. No, <laughs> he, he didn't bite. Plus, I think there would be some pathology on those... Um, those The flanges there, yeah. Yeah, literally <laughs> yeah. the cheekbones. Yeah. But I, I thought that was cool, too, the idea that, uh, like, they were so wide that you couldn't quite get to your opponent's brain. Yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, no, a sword hilt. Yeah. No, that was great. Yeah. So another good episode. Signing off from beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska, where the sun is kind of coming out now. I don't know. What's it doing down there in Ojai? Ojai, we've had uh, pretty much a lot of wind uh, the last few days. But Ojai is dry as a grasshopper on a hot griddle. Uh, high and dry and oh high. I'm scared. I'm really scared. We've only had two rain events this year and nothing's coming. So I think we're getting it all. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I'll see you uh, in about a month, actually. That's right. You're coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Coming up in a month. Okay. Yeah. So uh, can't wait. All can't right. Wait for It'll that. be good to see you in person, sir. And next week, we've got another amazing episode. Uh, and, coming uh, right up. I think it's a celebrity. We're, we're going to be talking no, to a celebrity. No, As it were, I haven't worked that out yet. <laughs> okay. You and I need to talk, so we'll figure it out. But yeah, we have a celebrity okay, on the line. We'll reel it in. That's right. So. Uh, okay. Take right. care, Ray. Thank you. Okay, dude. Signing off. Me too. Bye. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. Mm.